0: A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, chapter one. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that He has given to those He called, His holy people who are His rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself.
1: So today, uh, I want to start with a little bit of crowd participation, if you're willing uh, to do that with me. Um, here's uh, what I want to know. Show of hands. Uh, how many of you actually know what your name means? Anybody know what their name means? Okay. I see a few hands. It's interesting, uh, most names uh, that we give in our culture come from an origin, they have, a, they have an origin, and then they have some sort of deeper meaning behind the name, and uh, it's fascinating to some people, some people know what their name means, and if you don't know what your name means, uh, you actually can find out right now. I mean, if you've got a phone, you can pull up Google and just say... What does the name blank mean? And it will tell you. In fact, it'll be up there in some bold letters, and it'll tell you what your name actually means. In fact, you could do that right now. I don't mind. Go ahead. Uh, if you want to find out what your name means. I'll go first. Um, if you're new here, my name's Jason. Um, my name comes from Greek mythology. That sounds more impressive than it actually is. Um, but it means healer. Which is funny because I've never actually thought of myself as a healer. I've never actually healed anybody that, that I know of. Uh, if I have, let me know. That would be great. Um, but yeah, my name means healer. Um, and I, again, I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid for maybe a minute, but that was about it. So I don't have a whole, I don't really have a connection with the meaning of my name. But I know some people do. Um, I'm just interested. Anybody want to share what your name means? I mean, just a couple people if you want to. Yeah, what does your name mean? I'm sure. Your what? Pure? Wow. I won't ask any more questions. Because <laughs> I'm afraid. Alright, what's your name mean? Honoring God. Honoring God. Wow, that's cool. Um, yeah, one more. Praise. Praised? Like people praise you? That's a little conceited, I don't know. But... <laughs> Here's what I found that's kind of interesting about name meanings is I, I'm sure there's an exception out there somewhere, but I've rarely ever heard someone tell me their name means something negative. Like almost all the names that you'll, you'll see or hear, they mean something positive, right? I, I think that's sort of built into the whole naming uh, uh, culture that we have. So I want you to take a look for a second at this picture on the screen. You see this picture up here, these beautiful young ladies? Uh, This picture was taken uh, in India. All of these uh, young ladies are from India. And every little girl you see in this picture, they have the same name. Uh, Their name is Nakusa. Now, if you don't speak Hindi, uh, you're not from India, you don't know the language, if you met one of these young ladies and they were to say to you, my name is Nakusa, you would probably be very polite, as we often are in our culture, and you would say something to this little girl like, oh, what a beautiful name. But if you did know the culture and you did know Hindi and you spoke their language, you would never say that. Because what you don't know if you don't know their language is this. The name Nakusa literally means unwanted. Yeah. See, when these little girls were babies, in their culture, their father would have named them. That's how they would do it. And these little girls' daddies gave them the name Nakusa. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why that probably happened in certain parts of the Indian culture. Uh, Of course. Girls are not as valued as babies as the boys are. Uh, It comes from a lot of reasons is because a lot of families live in poverty. And when you have a little girl, when that little girl grows up and it becomes time for her to get married, uh, you are expected to provide a very expensive dowry, a big uh, gift to the groom's family. And a lot of these families, they just can't afford it. And so a little girl is actually a drain on the family finances. And so many of these little girls, they are labeled unwanted. Many of them are cast out of their homes. They are left to live in the streets. Many of them wind up in prostitution just to survive. And I just want to just sit with that for a second. I mean, can you imagine what life is like when all you've ever been known as is Nakusa, Unwanted? But now, as heavy as that probably feels to a lot of us, there's good news in this picture because on this day, is a, this is a celebration. On this day, the government was issuing brand new names to these little girls. That's what the certificates are all about. Many of these little girls had been taken in by organizations or Christian ministries that had uh, helped girls in their situation. They had been receiving housing, education. Many of them are headed for an actual career. And on this day, they got to choose a new name. And their new name is on that certificate, and it is a, government, uh, is a government certificate changing their name to whatever name they got to choose. They have new names. They have new identities. So they will no longer be referred to as Nakusa again. The sad news is, is when I meet people and I talk to people, I feel like we've got lots of Nakusas in our culture. Lots of people who live their whole lives with this identity of I'm unwanted or I don't have worth or I don't have very much value. Now last week we started this study in a book in your Bible known as Ephesians. And as I said to you last week, it's actually not a book, it's a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to a group of Christians in a church in the great city of Ephesus. And Paul starts out this letter, and what he wants to do is he wants to remind these followers of Jesus about their true identities, what label they truly carry, and we focused on what that was last week. But this week, in the section of the letter that we're going to look at and we've already read together, Paul's going to take the discussion just a little bit further. And a question Paul wants to answer in this section of his letter is this. Where do your identities come from? In other words, what or who have you allowed to label you, to name you, to identify who you are? And when it comes down to it, who gets to decide? Who gets to claim that label or place that label on you? And more importantly, who are you allowing put that label on you. Who are you listening to? And can I just go ahead and be honest? I know you you, you're thinking this because you're here you're sitting in a church and you're like okay uh, you're like telegraphing this. I know where you're going already right? And I I, I get that but can we just pull back for a moment and be honest with ourselves for a few minutes? Can you just think about the labels that you have tended to wear in your life? The things that you have allowed to define who you are Not necessarily consciously, but just what you sort of allowed to creep in and define you. In our culture, no doubt, some of you have let money define you. You say, I'm poor, and I'm always going to be struggling to make ends meet. Or you say, I'm upper middle class, which usually means i got to spin like it to prove it. And so you have. Or maybe it's your position Your job, the title that they give you at work. And the truth is, depending on how well that work or that job is going, that's what determines your happiness and your mood all day long. Speaking of moods, some of you are just defined by your mood. Some of you get defined by your emotions or your desires in the moment. And how you feel, well, that's who you are on that day. Or maybe you get defined by what happens to you on a particular day or what's going on around you in the greater world around you. You take your cues on who you are based on how someone treated you or how someone said something about you. Or maybe you define yourself based on how good you are, how moral you can be. And that's a big one for us Christians. So listen up. We Christians are really good about this. We love to define ourselves based on how good we are or how pleasing we are to God. In fact, some of you are going to walk out of here today and you're going to feel like you and God are really good and you are a really good person because you showed up here today and it gave you that identity boost a little bit. Now, the big problem with that is, and we see this in our culture, is when we Christians start to define ourselves based on how good and moral we are, the only way you can sustain that and keep it working is you've got to find some people who are less right than you are. If you can find some people who are wrong and you can label them wrong, then that makes you righter. And I know that's not a word, but that's how it works. <laughs> and it's a poison. It's a poison to you, it's a poison to them, it's a poison to our culture. And we see that all over the place. Jesus actually encountered, encountered some people like that in his day. There were these highly religious men, and they had this really weird tradition to us. See, there's a part of the Old Testament where God said, you should have your, my word written on your foreheads. Now, it's an image. It's a metaphor for getting God's word within our mind, deep within our souls. But these guys took it literally. And so what they began to do was they would take verses of Scripture from the Old Testament, they'd write it on pieces of paper, and they put it in these boxes. And the boxes were called phylacteries. And they would attach these phylacteries, these boxes, to their heads, to their wrists, and they would carry them around. And the more Scripture you had, the bigger box you had. And so the boxes got bigger. And can you imagine these religious leaders are walking around with these big boxes on their head? And we laugh, and we go, well, that's ridiculous. But for them, it was a badge of honor. And here's what Jesus said about them. He said, everything they do is done for people to see. See, what people thought about them, that's that's what had become their identity. Now, we look at that, and we, we judge that. But let me ask you this, what about us? We don't do that. Come on, we live in the 21st century. We're way too sophisticated for that right
0: let's be honest this is pretty much all social media is we take pictures and videos of our best selves living our best lives we use filters that turn our faces and angles that shape our bodies into something that we're not in order to gain the approval of other people and then it's a catch-22 if nobody cares or notices we get depressed because we're being ignored and if we do get noticed and praised by other people it's still depressing because we know we're being loved and accepted based on a lie and we've turned the control of our identities over to other people did you know the word identity comes from the same root word as identical now why does that matter well You know that identical means that which is the same, which means your identity should be determined by whatever is the same or unchanging about you. So when you're looking for where your identity is, you should always ask yourself this question. What is always the same about me? What is always true about me? What is the thing about me that never changes? That's where true identity comes from. See, if you base your identity on something that changes or fluctuates, something that goes up or down or in or out, like your job, your money, your relationship status, your feelings or emotions, you wind up distorting your identity. So when the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, he reminds them of where their true identities come from. He says in chapter one, verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that phrase marked with a seal can also be translated a little differently. It means when you believed, God identified you as his own. It's an identity statement. You are God's, you belong to him. Because God has placed a seal or a mark on you, That will never change. Now, this is an actual image that would have been familiar to them in their context. Whenever a king would send a message, he would seal the scroll by pouring hot wax on the edge to hold it shut. And the king wore a -a one-of-a-kind ring with his insignia on it. So the king would press the ring into the hot wax to create his unique seal. It was a form of security, but also a way for everyone to know that this seal could have only come from the hand of one person. Whatever bore the seal of the king belonged to the king. He had marked it or sealed it as his own. And so Paul here is saying that the Holy Spirit is God's seal, creating a new permanent identity for us. When you place your trust in Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence within you, and he identifies you as belonging to God. Let me read you the rest of what Paul says here. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. See, there it is. You are God's possession. You belong to him. It's who you are. And the presence of God living within you is like a deposit or a down payment on what's yet to come. The kingdom of God is already present in this world. And you and I are citizens of that kingdom. And it's breaking through and it's taking hold right now. And one day, God will bring his kingdom to its final completion and we, as God's children, will be included in it. Now, you and I, we don't always live as if we're children of God. We often adopt different identities and we allow someone or something else to define who we are and how we live. But the good news is it never changes the truth about who we are because our true identity has been marked with a seal and it never changes.
1: So that's why Paul writes this next part of his letter. And what he does in this next part is actually his prayer for his brothers and sisters. And I'm going to read the entire thing and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at a few key parts of it. But he begins the prayer, so to speak, in verse 15. He says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope He's given to those He called, His holy people, who are His rich, glorious inheritance. I also pray you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that cr- raised Christ from the dead and, is, and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he's far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ. He has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church, and the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. Now, three things I want you to see out of this prayer section that Paul is praying for these Ephesian Christians. He says in verse 17, he says, I pray that you would grow in your knowledge of God. Now, some translations simply say, I pray that you would know God better. Now, when you and I hear the word know, I know what you think. You think It's about what I think. (laughs) It's about what I gain in my head. It's about getting information in my brain. But here's the truth. In the original Greek language, which Paul was writing in, there are actually two words that they would use that we would translate as to know something. One of them, yes, means head knowledge, getting smart, thinking something, putting knowledge inside of your head. That's one of the words for know. But then there's another one. And it means to know something Intimately by experience. Now, guess which word Paul used? The second one, right? Paul used the second one. He says, I want you to know God, not like you study some subject in school, not like you reading a book about him. I want you to know him by experiencing him in your everyday life. Now, here's the image I want you to get in your mind. So this December, my wife and I will be married for 26 years. We've been together for several decades now, and I know a lot of things about my wife, a lot of things that nobody else knows. I know her social security number. I could tell it to you right now. I won't, but I know it. (laughs) I know that about her. I know what her favorite foods are. I know what she had for breakfast this morning because it's what she has for breakfast every morning, and I know that it has changed throughout our marriage, but I know what it is. I know what she likes I know her family. I know her history. I could stand up here and probably spend hours reciting to you facts about my wife. But here's the truth. If I gave you enough time and I gave you enough information, you could too. You could find out facts about my wife. You could learn those facts and you could regurgitate those facts back to me. But you know, there are some things that I know and no one else will ever know about my wife because they exist in our relationship. They exist in the experiences that we have had together. For example, there are some words that I could say, and she's in the room right now, that I would say, phrases that I could say, and they would mean nothing to you. You would think they were silly, but she'd know, and she'd probably smile. Because there are moments, there's context behind them, there's a relationship behind them. There are moments and you could watch her and I uh, interact with one another, and she could reach over and just place her hand on me and touch me. And you would think you knew what that touch meant. You would have no idea, but I'd know. (laughs) I'd know exactly what that touch meant. And see, there are things that, there are times when I can look at her affect. I can see her face. I can see her posture. And I know what she's thinking. I know what she's feeling. She can do the same thing for me. You can know my wife. But you'll never know her the way I know her. Because we have experienced each other. See, this is the kind of knowing that Paul is talking about. When he says, I want you to know God. Not just know. I want you to know him. And the reason he says it that way is it goes back to his original reason for writing all of this. Because Paul knows that when you know God like that, when you have experienced God, that's when you will finally know you. You'll know your true identity. You'll be more likely then to listen to God's voice over all the other voices that speak into your identity. And he continues, look, verse 19. Paul says, I also want you to understand the enormous, indescribable power of God. Now what's interesting about this phrase, this way he expresses it, is what he says here is he doesn't say, I'm praying that you would have or possess God's power. He's saying, I want you to get it. I want you to understand it. I want you to comprehend it. And that's an important extin- distinction because it's not an identity prayer. See, he's praying that they would begin to live in the power that is already theirs. He doesn't pray that they would have the power. No, no, no. He assumes that they have it. He says, you already got it. You already have access to it. I just wish you'd get it way down deep so that you'd start to live like it. The power's available. It's already yours. He makes that clear. And then he goes on and he describes it. He said, this is not some kind of power that just gets you up and out of bed every morning and just barely gets you through the day. (laughs) He said, no, the power that lives within you, the body of Christ... Is the same power that raised Jesus out of the grave. That's what lives inside of you. And he's saying, if you would just get that, if you would just understand that, if you could just comprehend that is who you are, that is who is within you. If you were to do that, I'm telling you, a lot of the outlooks in your life would change. A lot of the things that you spend most of your time concerned about, would look a whole lot different if you fully comprehended that the power of Jesus is within you. And that's what Paul's praying for. Now, I can say all that, but that's not enough. Because again, it's just head knowledge. We said before, knowledge of God has to come through experience of God. And so, I want to give you a moment to begin that process. We're going to take a few moments, and we're just going to talk to God. And here's what I want you to ask Him to do. I want you to ask Him to increase your knowledge and your understanding and your experience of His love for you. Ask Him that He might increase your love for Him. But we're going to spend time with our Father. So, Steve, why don't you come and lead us in that time?
2: Like Jason's already said... Knowing God is about so much more than just intellectual knowledge. God's not just some subject that you learn about or a topic that you can Google. God's a being. He's a person with whom you can have a relationship. And he invites us to know him and to know his great love for us in a very, very personal way. And so right now, we just want to take a a few moments of quiet just to speak to God using the words of Paul's prayer uh, for the Ephesian church. And we want to just ask God to make himself known to us. Now, I get that this may be weird if you're not sure that you believe all that we do. And as Heidi already said, you do not need to feel obligated to participate. But I just want you to know that this practice isn't about trying to manufacture some kind of mystical experience um, with God. Uh, We're not just expecting to hear audible voices or some undeniable event to happen. The knowledge of God, well, it's a process. It's not an event and all we're doing is opening ourselves up to God's invitation to be made known and trusting that he will do so in his way and in his time and so if you feel comfortable doing so would you read these words of Scripture on the screen with me and the words in bold if you'd read those out out loud Paul writes I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Now, would you take just a few moments just to ask God to do this for you? Whether you're not sure you believe in Him at all or whether you've been following Him for decades, would you just ask God for Him to help you know Him better? Let's take a few moments to do that now. Now, would you join me in reading these words of Paul again? I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Now, would you ask God to help you know him better, not only through a relationship with him, but through your relationship with his people. Ask God to help you know and love Him better through the church. Let's do that now. Now one last time. Would you join me in reading these words of Scripture out loud? I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now ask God for an experience of His power in your life. Maybe there's a specific area of your life where you want to experience that power. Just ask Him for that right now, Heavenly Father. Help each of us to know you and your great love for us better and as we grow in knowledge may we grow in love for one another may your power and love flow through us so that as a community we may reveal your love to one another in powerful and tangible ways we ask all of this in the name of Jesus amen
1: now my favorite part of Paul's prayer section in this chapter is really when he winds this chapter up uh, in verses 22 and 23. And I'll just paraphrase it here. Paul basically says, he says, Jesus has total authority over every part of creation, especially, and he wants to hammer this home, especially a true among you, his body, the church, us together. He has all authority, all uh, power over us. And then he says, you and I, we are made whole, we are made complete by this one fact. Jesus fills all things everywhere with himself. Here's the image. Ever had a leak in your house? (laughs) Ever had a pipe burst? Ever had some water get out of control, right? Right? and you're spending all of your energy, and it's just this frantic amount of energy to try and contain this water. And the more you try, the more it just keeps flowing. You have to The only way is you've got to stop the flow of that water, because if you don't, that water will fill every, everything, everywhere with itself. It just flows into every little place that it can find, right? That's just the nature of water. It's the way it is what he's saying here is that you, me, and every other person on the planet, it's like we were born with this identity jar. And you carry that thing around, and you start out in life, and the jar is pretty empty, right? But as you go throughout your life, you open up that identity jar, and Whatever's there, whoever's there, whatever is informing you about who you are, it just flows into that jar and it just fills it up, right? Situation after situation, person after person keep coming into your life and you open up that jar and they just fill it on up. You give them a say in your identity and who you are. It's like we're walking around with this constant question and it doesn't grow out of us. We're always asking the world, people around us, who am I? What do you think about me? Who, who am I? Tell me who my, what my identity is. And the sad thing is that usually the people who got to your jar first are the ones who filled it up. The ones that got to you first, they got the say. They got to be the informers of what your identity was going to be. And So for some of you, your, your jar it just got filled up when you were really young. And it got so full, it just wouldn't contain much of anything else. And so what'd you do? You just sort of closed it up and you just pocketed that and you just carried it around. And that identity jar, it's just filled with all kinds of names and all kinds of labels. Some that we, we mentioned earlier. Unwanted. Unlovable. Stupid. Uneducated. Incapable. Dirty and used up. Damaged goods. Confused and anxious. Defeated. Abandoned. Helpless and lost. Broken. Empty. See it got real quiet in here because I know you're identifying with some of those labels. I know you are. Some of you, that has become your identity. That is just who you are. And I'm just here to say to you, maybe it's just time. Maybe it's time for you to take the lid off and just pour it out and then reach out and let Jesus fill it back up because He fills everything everywhere with Himself. He can fill you up too. See, your true identity is not something that changes, and we talked about it. It's it's the thing that has stayed the same always about you. It doesn't shift based on your feelings or the day you've kind of had today. Your true identity doesn't come from what's been said about you or what you do or what's been done to you. Your true identity is found in His identity. Who you are comes from who He is. And I know what you say. You say, I'm confused and I'm discouraged. Jesus says, I'm the light. You say, I'm disconnected. Jesus said, I'm the vine, connect to me. You say, I'm hungry, I'm unfulfilled. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You say, I'm abandoned and I'm helpless. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I'll lead you. I'm lost, you say. Jesus says, I'm the way. You say, I'm confused. Jesus says, I'm the truth. You say, I'm defeated. Jesus says, I'm the life. You say, I'm anxious, I'm overwhelmed. Jesus says, I am the prince of peace. You say, I'm broken beyond repair. Jesus says, I am the great redeemer. You say, I am so empty. Jesus says, I'm the one who will fill everything in every way with myself. I don't want you to answer this one out loud. I want you to just think for a minute. So just think silently when I ask you this question. It may sound like it's coming out of left field. What do you think is the first song you ever learned as a child? Now, some of you think back and you say, well, it's the first song I remember. The first song you remember might be your ABCs. Or maybe it's some nursery rhyme that some, somebody read to you out of a book and you learned those rhymes. In a few years, unfortunately, there are going to be some poor kids in this generation that are going to get asked that question, and they're going to say, Baby shark. <laughs> we are so sorry. <laughs> you were asked me that question. It doesn't take me long. I know exactly what I would say. Because the first song I ever learned contains to this day the most important truths that have ever been spoken over my life. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I thank God every day that somebody somewhere along my path, before I ever could comprehend what those words meant, they put them right here. And I just want to say that I know for some of you here today, nobody did that for you. I'm so sorry. My heart breaks that they didn't do that for you. Or maybe they did, but because of something that happened to you along the way, or maybe because of something that got said to you, you sit here today and your identity is just distorted, or just feels like it got stolen from you. And I am here to tell you once and for all, you have not lost your identity. You might have lost sight of it. You have not lost it. It is still true of you. It has always been true of you, whether you have kept it in your sight or whether you have not. Jesus loves you, this I know. And it will never change. Because the cross has spoken. And that is the only word you need about your identity. And so today, we're going to experience it. We're going to come to the cross by receiving the meal of communion. We're going to come to the table. And we're going to experience the love of Jesus once and for all for us. So Steve's going to come. He's going to lead us to the table today.